Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Pockets, or The Presence in the Darkness, by Ian Gordon. It is with relief and a newfound sense of confidence that I'm finally opening my mouth in order to address the awful business that plagued me for over thirty years and the extreme measures it took to put an end to it. I'll cut to the chase here. I'm talking about pockets. No, I'm not referring to shirt or trouser pockets. I'm on about those mysterious, intangible black spots that surround us in our homes. For example, the corner of the back attic room, the shed at the bottom of the garden, the airing cupboard in the spur bedroom, and, as far as this story goes, the landing at the top of the stairs. These pockets of space are bursting with supernatural energy, phenomena rarely seen, but often felt. It all started when I was a boy. I must have been six or seven years old when I first became aware of the presence on the landing. I used to sit in my bedroom with the door wide open, gazing out at the stretch of hallway beyond, and there, in the half-light, Things would move before my eyes, cups and saucers on conveyor belts, drawn towards huge, chomping trash compactors. The visions had the strangest effect on my body. I'd lose all feeling from head to toe, as though the phenomenon had a direct effect on my vitality. The presence was pulling me in the direction of that otherworldly conveyor belt, to be fed to the trash compactors, just like the cups and saucers. But this nightmarish imagery was just a precursor an introduction to the true nature of the pockets. The teenage me had a much rougher time on that landing. Thanks to a pair of very understanding parents, by the time I'd reached the age of fourteen, I'd swapped my bedroom by the landing for the two rooms comprising the attic. In the dead of night, there, at the top of the house, I felt safe in the knowledge that my mother and father were right beneath me, forming a protective barrier between my room and the dark, untenanted spaces that made up the ground floor. Those rooms, living room, dining room and kitchen, were quite tolerable during waking hours, but after bedtime, especially if one were unfortunate enough to need to visit the bathroom, those silent spaces represented interminable darkness, mysterious voids, the likes of which a young boy should never dare tread, and all access from that damnable landing but crossing that landing was unavoidable if one needed to tinkle in the night. The fourteen-year-old I was spent many an hour musing over the subject of the landing. What was it that made it so intolerable? Had I come to associate my childhood visions with that stretch of hallway? Had I developed an irrational fear of the dark? Or was it the way in which the landing overlooked the stairs, that terrible plunge into absolute darkness below? The latter certainly seemed to explain my preoccupation with what may or may not be on the prowl down there after bedtime. But it only got worse. Mothers have distinctive voices. Perhaps the voice of mother is the most familiar sound in the world. We spend our formative years in the company of that voice, and so, by the time we reach a certain age, we know it intimately. And it was with such recognition that I began hearing her voice in the night, I'd be tucked up in bed, the sheets pulled up to my chin, and the calls would begin. Ian, she'd call, her voice but a whisper. Ian, 
and I'd pull the sheets up over my head, stick my fingers in my ears, and pray for sleep to put me out of my misery. But the first time I heard it, I was convinced it had belonged to the real thing, and, despite the lateness of the hour, I descended the attic stairs, stepped out into the blackness of the landing, and leaned over the balcony to better hear her. I called back, certain she was down there, ignoring the fact that the ground floor was dark and deserted, and her call came again, but much closer this time, so close in fact, that I felt the chill of her breath on my clammy face. But it wasn't my mother, couldn't have been my mother, and up the attic stairs I flew, my body shaking, my heart racing. Despite the familiarity of the voice, I often felt there was something behind it, a deeper male voice, a desperate, mournful undertone that made my skin crawl. Eventually, though, the voices stopped. I knew they belonged to the pocket, that horrible black spot at the top of the stairs, and I knew that it was reaching out to me, that whatever it was, it had a desperate need to reach me, but I wouldn't fall into its hands quite so easily. Not for a while, anyway. The years passed. I left school, left home, moved next door, actually, number 59, at the ripe old age of 19. The house was a touch bigger than my parents' place, with a particularly large attic space on the second floor. My bedroom was on the first floor, at the front of the house, and although the house had two landings, one on the first and second floors, neither seemed imbued with the properties I'd come to associate with those disquieting black spots. That honour had apparently been reserved for the back bedroom on the first floor. It was imperative, I soon learned, to ensure the door to the back bedroom was shut tight prior to bedtime. For visits to the bathroom during the night, which was adjacent to both bedrooms, involved a face-to-face encounter with it. On one occasion, during the first few weeks of my tenancy, I emerged from my bedroom at that time of the night, between two and three in the morning, and caught a glimpse of something moving in the shadowy depths of the back bedroom. The door was wide open, you see, and the dim illumination afforded by a number of street lamps outside had rendered the thing visible in the gloom. Whatever it was, it wasn't so much moving as it was creeping. All limbs and slight of body it was, flailing, and the landing upon which I was standing, shaking, appeared to be its destination. Overcoming this numbing fear, I leapt forward, pulled the door shut, and locked myself in the bathroom. There I sat on the toilet seat, quaking, my mind filled with the vague yet mighty impression of the shadow shape that had crept towards me in the dark. In the dead silence of that cramped bathroom, I became overwhelmingly aware of the fact that the only thing separating me from the thing in the back bedroom was an internal wall some five or so inches thick, and I felt its eyes upon me, if eyes it had. Right there it was, as though the wall wasn't there at all. I can hardly describe the fear I felt, alone there on the toilet seat. I think I sat there most of the night, under the watchful, invisible eye of the thing in the back bedroom. But something significant occurred to me during those long hours, something that would serve me well thereafter. I realised that the shadow shape was a prisoner, an occupant of the black spot, and as long as I could be reasonably certain of the pocket's boundaries, the thing would never be able to reach me, just as it had failed to do so next door, on the landing. I was concerned, though, for in all those years under my parents' roof, nothing had ever manifested physically before, 
other than those strange voices, of course. With the laws of the black spot understood, well, sort of, I continued to live at number 59 for a number of years without further incident. But when a promotion at work demanded a relocation, I knew that I'd shortly be coming face to face with the unknown once again. Despite my strange experiences as a child, teenager, and later young adult, I spent the majority of my time living what you might call an ordinary life. I wasn't devastatingly disturbed by the things I'd experienced. In fact, I occasionally reveled in the opportunity to tell my story. But it was certain that I carried an invisible burden, the notion that one day, the presence in the darkness would eventually catch up with me. The relocation I spoke of took me across the country to the quiet village of Rillington, just south of Derby. The company I worked for at the time was headquartered in the city, and so Rillington, a mere fifteen-minute drive away, was a convenient place to hunker down. Being single and underpaid, I was still in no position to buy, and so chose to rent a quaint cottage on the edge of the village. The property was detached, comprising a spacious living area on the ground floor, next to which was a moderately sized kitchen diner, and on the first floor a double bedroom, opposite a three-piece bathroom. As you entered the cottage, you stepped into a large entrance hall, wherein, directly opposite the front door, ascended a steep staircase, at the top of which was a small landing. When viewing the property in the first instance, I ascended those stairs in broad daylight and thought little of that cramped space between the bedroom and bathroom. But on my very first night there, the moment I switched the lights out on the landing, I caught a glimpse of something terribly familiar an awful plunge into absolute darkness below. I practically jumped into the bedroom, but not before my mind's eye reacquainted me with several items of crockery on their way to a certain trash compactor. This landing, this new landing, was a pocket, and whatever it was that drew breath, crept, flailed, or merely existed within it, I knew that it was the very same something that had stalked me throughout the years. The slamming shut of the bedroom door seemed to halt the thing's progress, but just as I had heard all those years ago, a voice emanated from the blackness on the other side of those thin strips of wood. Ian, came the familiar voice. Ian, it repeated. Again, it impersonated my mother. Again, a deeper, desperate undertone accompanied it. And just as I'd done as a boy, many times before, I leapt into bed, pulled the sheets up over my head, stuck my fingers in my ears, and prayed for sleep to put me out of my misery. The next morning, I emptied my full bladder with a great deal of satisfaction, vowing to henceforth leave the landing light on for the remainder of my tenancy. That afternoon, I invited a friend over. I just had to discuss the whole mess with someone. I don't know where to begin, I began, eyeballing my palms. Just tell me what you can came Cindy's reply. Cindy was an old school friend, who, as good fortune would have it, had also recently relocated to Derby. I'd called her on a whim, desperate for a second opinion, and she'd willingly obliged her visit, for which I was incredibly grateful. Okay, I said, and proceeded to tell her about the cups and saucers on the conveyor belt, the trash compactor and the voices on the landing, number 59, the back bedroom and the shadow ship my recent trauma in the cottage, involving the reprisal of mother, and the fear that this thing was stalking me, had been for decades, the whole bit. Cindy responded, 
as I'd begun, with... Okay. I know it sounds a little... bizarre, I said, but I swear it happened, all of it. I don't doubt it. Cindy returned, her words sincere. These pockets, where did they come from exactly? I mean, how were they formed? I've no idea, I answered honestly. I've come to look at it like this. We occupy one in a potentially infinite number of dimensions, a vast cloud of possibilities. And just as clouds on Earth are affected by changes in certain conditions, such as air temperature and uh, humidity, the dimensional cloud reacts to changes in conditions in, in the same way. What if these changes occasionally result in a sort of, oh, I don't know, overlapping of dimensions? Would a scenario like that allow for the kind of phenomenon I'm experiencing here? Cindy pondered the crazy notion for a moment before responding. If that were the case, she said hesitantly, then wouldn't everybody experience this kind of thing from time to time? Perhaps they do, I surmised. Isn't it possible that those strange extrasensory feelings some people claim to have are in fact the result of having encountered something like this? Could some of us be wired in such a way that we're able to sense this kind of thing? Anything's possible, Cindy said, her eyes never leaving mine. I nodded in agreement, watching, as she considered her next words. But if it's just some... cosmic accident, she started, a fluke of nature, or whatever, then why is it targeting you? It doesn't sound like overlapping dimensions. I don't know, I insisted. I just kind of feel it reaching out to me. And I get the sense that it's alien. Like the overlapping was only temporary. And that as the two realities withdrew from one another, portions of this thing's reality were left behind. Pockets attached to certain places and times, each of which contains some aspect to this thing. Conscious aspects forced into submission each and every time I shut it out or relocate. But when it has my attention... It shows me things, perhaps in an attempt to hypnotise or to entice, like the cups and saucers on the conveyor belt, or the sound of my mother's voice. Perhaps it truly is a prisoner here on Earth, seeking my help in order to return it to wherever it is it came from, or perhaps... I stopped abruptly, inhaled deeply, and held my breath for a few seconds, well aware that I'd started to ramble. Cindy just stared at me, a blank expression filling her face. Can I stay tonight? She asked, which, I have to admit, took me by surprise. Here? I stuttered. T tonight? That's what I said. I swallowed audibly before saying, rather too enthusiastically, Of course. And then I realised why she'd asked in the first place. What a fool I was. She wanted to see the thing for herself. I can't guarantee you'll see anything, I said. But Cindy just smiled. The warmth of that smile melted my cold, cynical heart. We ate together, beans on toast, if I recall correctly, and awaited the coming of nightfall. The whole thing filled me with dread. The last thing I wanted to do was gaze upon that appalling landing in the dark, but that's what Cindy wanted, and she believed that in doing so she was going to be performing some sort of exorcism, albeit an exorcism of the mind rather than of the body. And as absolute darkness stole over the village of Rillington, I trembled in my slippers as Cindy led me upstairs and positioned the pair of us just inside my bedroom 
looking out onto that small foreboding landing. Quite calmly, she reached across and switched out the light. As is often the case when put on the spot, nothing happened. Other than being plunged into darkness, the general atmosphere remained the same, one charged with something other than supernatural energy. I heard Cindy's heavy breathing by my ear, and immediately realised that the mask she wore was much braver than the person beneath. I took her hand, pulled her close, and, well, one thing led to another, and a short while later the two of us were neatly coiled about one another in bed, just within reach of the open bedroom door. We lay there a while in total silence, the beating of our hearts the only reminder that we were, in fact, still alive. But that feeling of elation, that all-encompassing bliss, was short-lived. Our dark-adapted eyes were exploring the dull, grey outlines of various items of furniture. The wardrobe, the dresser, the freestanding mirror, until finally our glows met the outline of the open door. The word void doesn't do it justice. That doorway opened upon absolute blackness, the sort of darkness that threatened to envelop anything foolish enough to enter therein, a nightmare gloom so dense that to describe it as textured or woollen wouldn't have been much of an exaggeration. Cindy and I gazed into the abyss, and as Nietzsche once said, the abyss gazed into us. For the first time in my life, I was able to share my experience with another. Cindy cuddled up close as that alien presence watched from the threshold, its longing a living, palpable thing. I was frozen in place, just staring into the blackness, but the pull of the thing was strong, and I knew that if I didn't act soon, Cindy and I would be drawn towards it, and its mysterious purpose would be fulfilled. To reach out and push the door closed would be too much. I couldn't risk getting too close, not at this late stage in the game, and so, automatically, I pulled the sheets up over our heads and placed my index finger over Cindy's lips. If we were quiet and patient, I whispered to her, the thing would retreat at dawn. And both quiet and patient we were, even after the voices started, and we remained hidden under the bedsheets till the first indication of daylight fell upon them. Cindy and I became very close. Within a month of that fateful night, she was spending most nights with me at the cottage in Rillington. The landing light was left on, of course, 24-7, and a couple of floor lamps were purchased too, just in case. We sought to understand the true nature of the phenomena, and began acquiring literature on the subject. By subject, I'm referring to the supernatural, though admittedly our studies never seemed to touch upon the kind of thing I, and now we, were experiencing. And so, we tried another approach. We established a timeline of events, from my earliest childhood experiences through to recent occurrences at the cottage. We produced crude blueprints of the affected houses, and attempted to define the boundaries of the black spots within. We measured the distances between the properties, and whether or not the intensity of the activity at any given location was affected by the topography of the area. But we came up with very little. My overlapping dimensions theory was revisited, but eventually abandoned, as we had no means of objectively testing such an idea. The only things left to analyse were the things Cindy and I had either heard or seen. Intangible things, such as intense feelings and vague forebodings, were just way beyond our ability to investigate. In my case, I'd often heard the voice of my mother, 
but other than the visions of the cups and saucers on the conveyor belt, which I'd always believed were happening inside my head, I had only ever physically seen the thing on one occasion, the shadow shape in the back bedroom at number 59. As for Cindy, she'd only heard it, but it wasn't her mother or any family member that spoke to her. It was a small, weak voice, a voice she was certain had been hers as a child. Mummy! It had cried. Mummy! Over and over again. But still, after weeks of musing, we were at a loss to explain it all. And so, as human beings are often wont to do, Cindy and I moved on with our lives. We relocated to a neighbouring village, Milton, but not before vigorously vetting the place for troublesome pockets. The agent responsible for showing us around the property, on no less than three occasions, must have wondered why we had always insisted on viewing the place after nightfall. The house in Milton, a modern two-bedroom townhouse, was very kind to us. We lived there, quite happily, for over five years. In all that time, we'd forgotten about our experiences at the cottage in Rillington, and even the memories of my earlier traumas had dissipated somewhat. We were also fortunate enough to be gifted a daughter during that happy period, a delightful soul we named Amber. It was Amber's need for more space that precipitated our move from the two-bedroom house in Milton to the spacious three-bedroom semi-detached in Quorn. By then, we'd completely forgotten about the concept of pockets, and the vetting we carried out in Milton was at the very back of our minds when viewing the new property. Cindy fell in love with the place immediately, mostly owing to the fact that the house was immaculately finished, and much to her taste, possessing all the character and period features our previous modern affair had lacked. Amber settled into a new sizable bedroom, and started primary school the very same year as a beautiful, confident little girl. Cindy and I formed a furniture restoration business, managing to convert an old garage into a functional workshop. Life was good, everything was moving in the right direction, but something else was moving too, something that crept, something that I'd neglected to consider for far too many years. And it was about to catch up with me, me and my little family. But the most traumatic thing, the most terrible thing, was preceded by the passing of my mother. She'd been suffering from dementia for a number of years, and, coupled with my father's decline in health, I'd felt obliged to travel up and down the M6 on a weekly basis in order to spend time with them. I mean, it's not as though I didn't want to spend time with them. It's just that life with Cindy and Amber was all-consuming, and the four-hour return journey wasn't always welcome at the end of a long week. In the end, my father had called, informing Cindy and I of my mother's rapidly deteriorating state, and, though she hadn't always recognised me in the latter years due to the severity of her condition, I'd heard her in the background of that call, calling my name, and there was something about her tone of voice that triggered unwelcome, dusty memories. I remembered the black spot on the landing, and, fleetingly, wondered if it were, in fact, my mother's voice that I was hearing. Was it all a ruse? An attempt by the thing to reach me by exploiting my mother's poor health? It was impossible to tell at that time. And, hearing my father's desperation on the other end of the phone, I knew that it might be the last time I ever got to see my mother. And so, Cindy, Amber and me jumped into the car, and off we went in the direction of home. I wanted to tell Cindy what I'd heard in the background of my father's call, wanted to dredge up the old nightmare, 
but the situation was already precarious enough as it was. Moreover, I had absolutely no intention of frightening Amber. She would have enough on her plate having to say goodbye to her grandmother. And so, the journey was conducted in total silence. We reached my parents' place well after dark. Amber was fast asleep, and it pained me to rouse her. But we had to get inside quickly. Who knew how long my mother had left? But, fortunately, we did get to spend a few hours with her before she passed away. And, by nothing short of a miracle, she was almost her old self. <laughs> Warm, friendly, and, most importantly, cognizant of our presence. My mother died shortly after midnight, with a warm smile upon her face. We shed our first share of tears, but we were also happy to be able to be by her side as she passed on. The nurse, Lindsay, who had spent the last few days caring for her, was very kind and respectful, which went a long way to ease our suffering. But, and I admit it freely now, I was afraid to leave my mother's room. Not because I didn't want to say goodbye, but because I knew it meant walking out onto that abhorred landing, regardless of the fact that the lights were on and that I was in good company. Eventually, with encouragement from my father and Cindy, I summoned up the courage to vacate the bedroom and managed to cross the old landing without incident, though I was absolutely certain that the thing would have been there to greet me had the lights been switched out. My mother was taken to the mortuary, and the rest of us decided it would be too strange to spend the night in the house, and so we checked into a small bed and breakfast on the outskirts of town. In the morning, we ate breakfast together, and somehow, despite what we'd been through the night before, managed to enjoy ourselves. Cindy and I had discussed the inevitable passing of my mother on several occasions, and so we took the opportunity that morning to invite my father to come stay with us in Quorn. He declined in the interim, but promised to consider the invitation seriously if his health continued to decline. And that was that. Mother was gone, but my suspicions regarding the pockets had returned. Had the voice in the background the evening my father called really belonged to my mother? Again, I decided against talking to Cindy about it. It was just too dubious. We'd moved on from all that, hadn't we? But I spoke of trauma, didn't I? The terrible event that immediately followed my mother's passing. I suppose I should just get to the point, shouldn't I? Well, it isn't easy. Cindy, Amber and me returned to Quorn the very same morning we'd had breakfast with my father at the B&B, &B, and again an awkward silence had established itself, persisting throughout the afternoon. Cindy was suspicious. Her pointed glances gave it away. During our preparation for dinner, she confronted me. It's back, isn't it? She quizzed abruptly. What's back? I responded, but I knew the game was up. Don't give me the runaround, Ian. She had used my name, so I knew she was in no mood for games. Uh, I think it might be, yeah, I confessed, and sort of slinked away into a corner of the kitchen. Cindy followed me. It's been looking for us, hasn't it? I looked up at her. Why do you say that? Just a feeling, she said. We stood there in silence, eyeballing each other intently, and then, quite naturally, we returned to the task of preparing dinner. Cajun salmon was the fateful meal. I'll never forget it. The smell of that fish pervaded the entire house and lingered well after nightfall. We put Amber down just after 8pm, and if I recall correctly, 
we watched the latter two-thirds of an episode of The X-Files, the one about the man with the killer shadow featuring Tony Shalhoub. Poignant, really. We switched the television off just after nine and went to bed, and it was just as we ascended the stairs to retire that we made our first fundamental mistake that evening. We switched the landing light out, for that had been our routine for some five years. The fact that we'd started talking about the old pockets again hadn't changed that. We brushed our teeth, looked in on Amber, who was sleeping soundly, and climbed into bed. I fell asleep the moment my head touched the pillow. Several hours later, I awoke quite abruptly from what had been a particularly unpleasant nightmare to the sound of distant rattling. The dream had involved some shadowy figure on an open plain, stalking me in the darkness. The rattling in the waking world must have influenced the aspect of the figure in the dream, as by the very end of it the thing appeared to be a tall, gaunt waiter of some description, carrying a tray of drinks. Something about the waiter's face filled me with dread. It was familiar somehow. Cindy must have sensed my discomfort. She sat up to place a hand on my clammy back. Are you all right? She asked. Yeah, I confirmed. Bad dream. Then Cindy turned her head in the direction of the bedroom door and gestured towards it. Do you hear that? She asked. She was referring to the rattling, which now appeared to be getting louder, closer. Yeah, I whispered, and in my mind's eye I saw the waiter from my dream climbing the stairs, one step at a time. A cold sweat took hold of me. I felt nauseous. What is that? Cindy muttered, and gave me a look that I interpreted as a silent command. Okay, I managed. I'll check it out. I switched on the bedside lamp, climbed out of bed, and grabbed my dressing gown from the back of the door. Cindy followed and did likewise. Hesitantly, I reached out with a sweaty hand, gripped the door handle, pulled the door open. Immediately, the source of the rattling was revealed. There, crossing the landing, much to our relief, was Amber, illuminated by the soft light emanating from our bedside lamp. She was in the habit of waking in the middle of the night, wandering about the house in search of goodies. On this occasion, she prepared herself a teacup of milk. The rattling we'd heard was Amber, bless her, climbing the stairs with a cup and saucer. But it was in that glorious moment of relief that the terrible thing occurred. Like a splash of cold water across my face, a wave of dread washed over me. The light from the bedside lamp in the bedroom dimmed significantly, and the landing was plunged into a sort of grey twilight. Amber stopped in her tracks and looked up at Cindy and me as she did so. The loft hatch, which was right above her head, abruptly opened, and out tumbled a pair of inhumanly long arms, the limbs of the shadow shape. The ghastly appendages seized Amber about the waist, and, in one swift, smooth movement, hoisted her up into the loft. As her tiny frame disappeared into the darkness above, the cup and saucer she'd been so carefully holding came crashing down to the hardwood floor of the landing, smashing into a hundred pieces, and the milk disappearing between the boards. Cindy and I listened to her frantic pleas as the loft hatch was closed once more. Mummy! She screamed over and over again. Mummy! And then the screaming stopped. Everything fell silent. The bedside lamp brightened again. 
and our daughter was gone, taken, by the presence in the darkness. We were too numb to react. We simply fell to the milky floor and lay there, immobile. We lay there until the sun came up. Cindy was practically catatonic, far too gone to manage a call to the police. No, that was my job. I told them that our daughter had been kidnapped. It was true, she had been stolen from us. But I couldn't bring myself to explain the full extent of the situation to the straight-faced police officer who was giving it the twenty questions. But when I showed the officer in question to the hatch above the landing, his reaction wasn't quite what I expected. He shivered and offered me a knowing look, the look of a man who, just like Cindy and me, had possibly gazed into the shadows on a couple of occasions, only to find the shadows gazing back. Several officers went up there and my surprise, found an egress in the roof through which something had evidently burrowed or clawed through very recently. We were quickly ruled out as suspects in our daughter's disappearance, though I feared the subsequent search for who or whatever had made the hole in the roof would be a futile one. If truth be told, I doubted that the hole had anything to do with it, unless, of course, it had been created in order to support our kidnapping claims. In any case, Amber was gone and though the police tried to assure us that they would find her, Cindy and I knew that their efforts would be in vain. I was angry. Why had this thing taken my daughter? It wanted me. It had always wanted me. Hadn't it? In a quiet corner of a remote Leicestershire drinking hall, I had myself in with several pints of bitter, and thought the whole thing through. If my daughter was now in the company of the presence in the darkness trapped inside its prison, as it were, then perhaps she might be able to reach out, much in the way that it had. Furthermore, if these disparate pockets were connected in some arbitrary fashion, via some quantum conduit, for example, then perhaps time in that place ebbed as well as flowed, providing access to locations in the past. My mind would, aided though it was by copious amounts of alcohol, but a plan was forming in my shattered head, a plan involving a dramatic incursion into realms beyond time and space, a plane caught in the gravity of our own, if my theory regarding overlapping dimensions had anything to do with it. Fortuitously, around this time, Cindy was forced to return home to spend time with an ailing aunt, which left me alone in Quorn, to go about my business in the loft. For the first time in almost thirty years, I was preparing to do what I hadn't ever had the guts to do before. I was preparing to enter the darkness, intentionally. Of course, the pocket had to actually manifest again, for my terrible plan to work. Alone, my confidence boosted by a number of bitters, I ascended the staircase of my home in Quorn, and, as night fell, I found myself just inside the bedroom, not too far from the spot from which my beautiful daughter had been snatched before my eyes. And there I waited, hour after long hour, my drink-stilted gaze fixed upon the loft hatch. Finally, after an indeterminate period of time, well into the early hours of the morning, I felt the change to watch in total silence as a veil of darkness quietly draped itself over an already pitch-black scene was something I hadn't been quite prepared for. My teeth chattered, my hands shook, and still the gloom intensified about me. The pocket, I felt, 
represented an entrance to the void, an invitation into the abyss, and considering my daughter was in there somewhere, of that I was certain it was an invitation I simply couldn't decline. I thought of Cindy, of my late mother, of my ailing father, but above all I thought of Amber, my only child, and I knew what I needed to do. I whispered something under my breath that, in another life, might have passed for a prayer. Climbing to my feet, I strolled, without hesitation, into the beating heart of darkness. If there was a border between this world and that other place, I wasn't aware of crossing it as the darkness enveloped me. I couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything, simply felt the weight of my objective about my shoulders and a crushing sense of trepidation. Absolute darkness is difficult to describe. It took a while for me to acclimatize to it, but as I stood there, or floated there, I can't be sure, I perceived the gloom as a sort of soft blanket of the smoothest velvet, caressing every inch of me. It wrapped about me with such tenderness that I, I felt almost safe, protected even. There was a subtle warmth about it, too, that threatened to lull me to unconsciousness, and it was then that I realized that this was an attempt to seduce me, to distract me from my purpose, to yield unto the thing that lived there in the shadows, the thing that had sought this very moment for an untold number of years. But I needed to find my daughter, and no amount of fabricated coddling would keep me from tracking her down. And so, without thinking, I began to walk, or float, just took off blindly into the void. I opened my mouth and called out to my daughter, Amber! I yelled, while the sound of my voice died in the blackness. I tried again, with the same result. I was a blind man in a world without sound, but I was undeterred. Into the gloom I persisted, forcing ambulation as though submerged in a body of water, my yells continuing unabashed as though confined to a soundproofed vocal booth. Eventually, subtle impressions met my eyes, distant suggestions of rooms, bedrooms, bathrooms, and broad landings, sharp-angled shapes in the darkness and the rooms were occupied. A small boy, gazing onto a stretch of hallway from the comfort of a child's bedroom, a young adult, cowering on a toilet seat in a cramped bathroom, a couple, lying on a bed next to an open door, in the act of pulling the sheets up over their heads, and I saw that I was the occupant, in all of the rooms, with Cindy beside me on the bed, and there, in the blackness, I moved from room to room, shouting, gesturing, doing anything and everything in my power to reach out to those younger versions of me, to guide them, to warn them of the horrors that would invariably follow if they were to walk the same path I had. And it was as I screamed myself hoarse that I realized the true horror of my position. We, Amber and me, were the presence in the darkness. Cindy and I had heard the calls. I'd perceived those desperate cries as belonging to my mother. And in reality, it was me in there, desperate to issue a word of warning. And Cindy had thought the cries of Mummy had belonged to her younger self, when in fact, her own as of yet unborn daughter was the source of the frantic calls. That shadow shape, creeping, flailing in the back bedroom at number 59. Just another impression of myself in the darkness, reaching out. And Amber, bless her, had repeatedly shown me the cups and saucers. 
It was all so very surreal, confusing beyond my ability to reconcile. What had become of us, we, who wandered the void in fear and desperation? And then I saw her. The windows surrounding me melted away, and I was left standing face to face with Amber, some twenty feet or so ahead of me in the blackness. A thin shaft of light illuminated her. Her gaze met mine, and a smile like an inverted rainbow filled her little face. We ran to each other, and I threw my arms around her, lifting her up into, well, the, the velvety air. Daddy! She cried. You found me! And without hesitation, I started to run. In which direction I was running, I didn't care. I just wanted to run for as long as possible with my daughter in my arms, away from whatever it was that had so greedily snatched her away from me, the very thing that I had yet to encounter or understand. As I ran or floated through the all-consuming gloom, I struggled to process the final mystery. Who or what was it that had come for my daughter? If the visitations I'd experienced as a child and later as a young adult and so on had been nothing more than the future versions of myself and Amber, then what was it that had come out of the loft to snatch my daughter that terrible night? And were, exactly, was it now? Why did abandoned Amber, leaving her to fend for herself in this infernal abyss? Well, the answer may shock you. You see, the thing that snatched my daughter hadn't abandoned her, just as it hadn't abandoned me. It encompassed us entirely in that place. No longer did it need to extend strange imitation arms in order to envelop us. The thing that snatched Amber was darkness itself, the shadow that underpins everything from the flesh on your bones to the stars in the night sky. Blindly I continued, until eventually another window opened before us, and we were permitted to leave that place. Why we were allowed to leave, I doubt I'll ever know, in this life at least. We were reunited with Cindy, and spent many a day in the company of police officers, grilling us on the subject of our daughter's abduction, which... Unfortunately, we were ill-equipped to deal with. In the end, it was just accepted that Amber had inexplicably returned to us, and that, as a self-defence mechanism, she had concocted an elaborate story regarding a world of darkness beyond this one that had held her captive for a while. And there you have it. The relief and newfound sense of confidence I spoke of at the beginning of this account was born out of the fact that I've made peace with the darkness, accepted that the pockets represent a fate unavoidable. And nowadays, when crossing the landing in the dead of night, with the light on, of course, I content myself with the knowledge that the darkness behind the light is coming for all of us, not just me and my little family. So the next time you find yourself in the corner of the back attic room, by the shed at the bottom of the garden, next to the airing cupboard in the spur bedroom, or at the landing at the top of the stairs, be mindful of the true nature of the pockets and the things that live therein. Phenomena rarely seen, but often felt. It's watching you now, even as you listen to these words 